0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm going to read the birth narrative in verses 1 to 7 of the Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Father, we thank you for the record of the birth of your own Son and our Savior. We pray that and through faith, Lord, we would receive his blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And one of the most remarkable encounters ever, the Virgin Mary was greeted by an angel who gave her the news, the annunciation of the virgin birth, that in her womb, though she was a virgin, would be conceived, here's how he put it, uh, a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High, Luke 131. And it took a little while for young Mary to digest that. But when she finally did, she sang that song called the Magnificat and she had great things to say. And she said, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Now, with that announcement of the birth in Luke chapter one, we were so anxious to get to chapter two because what a spectacular birth this is going to be. The Holy One, the Son of God is going to come into the world. What a sublime and glorious event it's going to be. And then we actually turn the page and we get there. And from the sublime, we encounter the stunningly dismal, the the dreadful even. Uh, Bearing the incarnate Son of God, Mary arrives in Bethlehem with Joseph to, to encounter what most of us would consider a very alarming childbirth. Many of us have been parents uh, and have approached, particularly the birth of your first child, you have anxieties about it. This is a nightmare scenario. This is the thing you're trying to avoid. What happens in this passage? Luke writes that they're alone, except for the animals that share the stable they're taking shelter in, and they deliver the baby that way. After a 90-mile journey on difficult ancient roads while swollen in pregnancy, Mary gives birth and she wraps her baby son and puts him in a, a manger, which is a polite word for an animal's feeding trough because there was no room for them in the end, verse 7. Well, as startling as the details of Jesus' birth are, the troubling scene on the outskirts of Bethlehem was just important to our salvation as those glorious statements and themes found in chapter 1. By God's intention, God's son was born into a world of sin that shunned him from the day of his birth. It turns out that the birth of Jesus, with its alarming details, with its poverty, frankly, and humiliation, that was entirely appropriate for God's plan to save sinners Joseph Cook put it this way, Gentle Mary, later child, lowly in a manger. There he lay, the undefiled, to the world a stranger. Such a babe in such a place. Can he be the Savior? Ask the saved of all the race who have found his favor. Well, there's a number of things that we'll see in this account. And the first is a stunning display of the sovereignty of God as God orchestrates events far away to arrange the circumstances of the first Christmas. And we see this in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar Augustus was a Roman aristocrat born with the name Gaius Octavius. He was the nephew of Julius Caesar, who thought relatively highly of the youth, although he was not well known. But when Caesar died... Octavian was just as surprised as anybody else to find that he had been named sole heir of the great Julius Caesar with all of his vast wealth and all of his powers. And the people snickered. They said, this teenager, this young person, he's not going to do very well at all. Well, they found out because <laughs> he stunned them and the many things that he did. And before long, he'd raised an army and he had thumped the army of the senators who'd assassinated Julius Caesar, the great battle of Philippi. Interestingly, the t- city of Philippi, the Philippians, was, a, was land given to the veterans of Octavian's army who had won the victory over Brutus in the city of Philippi in Macedonia. It connects with the Bible. And then years later, he had an ally, Mark Antony, but Mark Antony betrayed him. He was a schemer. He was caught up with Cleopatra. And Octavian beats him in the Battle of Actium, the great naval battle of 31 BC. Along the way, he'd been given the title Caesar Imperator, that made him the commander of the armies of Rome, and with those armies he, he uh, enforced a purge, a bloody purge that violently snuffed out every conceivable political opponent that he had in Rome. Now, Octavian's genius was to exercise dictatorial power while respecting the old forms of the Roman Republic. And so the senators were still doing their thing. The the system was still operating. and, And the rules of the decrees were made by the Senate so long as they did exactly what Octavian wanted them to do. That was kind of the way his system worked. He was a dictator, but he wouldn't look like one. And they were willing to accept that. He was very popular in 27 BC. The Senate gave him the title Caesar Augustus, the one that's mentioned here. Uh, Augustus means sublime or illustrious. It's an allusion to deity is what they're getting at. He, he didn't want to be worshipped because that's one of the reasons they assassinated Julius Caesar, but they, he let them call him Augustus. He never took the title of emperor, although he really began an empire that lasted over 400 years. And he was a benevolent dictator, a hugely popular, hugely effective ruler. He was utterly devoted to the security and the well-being of his realm. He was known as a, as a stuffy traditional moralist, very concerned about the family. And he passed the law against adultery. One of his daughters committed adultery, and he exiled her. He was that kind of person. Uh, he would not, as I said, allow himself to be worshipped as God, but he deified uh, Julius Caesar. And then there are coins found that say Caesar Augustus on one side. And the back side says son of the divine Julius. There are inscriptions throughout the Roman Emperor to, Empire to Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. Now, this is the man historians revere him. One of the greatest men, most successful rulers ever. He was the son of a God. He was the savior of the world. He was the maker of peace on earth. And yet none of that was actually true. And Luke, as he recounts Jesus' birth, he, he notes the great sovereignty displayed by this Augustus. He makes a decree in verse 1 that all the world should be registered. Now, all the world means the Mediterranean world, all of which was under his sway. And the purpose of Caesar's census was to impose his control. That's why governments register people, to put them under their control, and taxation, of course, in this case. Now, this ability to require everyone in nations all through your world, uh, what it required was they each go back, they travel to their hometown, their family's home, and they get registered by a Roman official. That is a most impressive display of earthly sovereignty. Caesar spoke, and the whole world moved in obedience. Now you say, well, that's very inconvenient. Who cares? What mattered was not your inconvenience, but Caesar's will and your obedience to it. Luke says, all went to be registered, each to his own town, verse 3. Now Luke the evangelist displays his characteristically accurate historical attentiveness in verse 2. He says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, many critics of the Bible say, well, that's that's, that's actually wrong. It's just another one of these Bible errors. You say the Bible doesn't have errors. Here's an error because we have inscriptions showing that Quirinius was not governor of Syria. That's a big province and Palestine was part of it. Judea was part of it until 8 AD. That's too late. There's there's questions about the dating of Jesus' birth. Usually it's between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. 4 B.C. is the latest because that's when Herod the Great dies. We know that. And Herod the Great, you know, in Matthew's Gospel, in fact, I'll be reading that tonight, where he has all the boys of Bethlehem killed. And so Jesus is born before Herod died. Herod died in 4 B.C. That does mean that our Gregorian calendars are a little off. They, They are. Probably Jesus was born in late 5 B.C., At the latest, early spring 4 B.C. And here's the problem. Luke says Quirinius is governor. He wasn't governor until 8 A.D. Jesus could not have been born until more than a decade or, or later than a decade beforehand. What's the problem with Luke? Well, the problem is that Luke has information that we don't have. In fact, the information that he has, that we now have, is that Quirinius, though he was made formally governor in 8 AD, in 6 BC he was given, he was made the military commander of Syria. And, uh, and, and often it turns out the military commander was called the governor. We actually have records that show that he was specifically charged in 6 BC with carrying out the census decreed by Caesar Augustus? Why was it given to the military commander rather than the civil governor? Because of the revolts of the Jewish people that took place in response to the census, which he ruthlessly put down. Now, I mentioned that all these events actually show God's sovereignty, but so far, all I've been talking about is Caesar's sovereignty through Quirinius. Well, for all the might and the authority wielded by Caesar, what we discern here. It that he was only the means by which God was accomplishing his purpose through the birth of Jesus Christ. Caesar Augustus, he actually was a very impressive man, but he allowed himself to be called son of God and savior of the world. And God said, no, I'm the one whose son is coming into the world. Jesus is the son of God. He is the only savior of the world. And Caesar turns out to be merely a pawn through whom God is orchestrating his purpose. Philip Ryken says, although Caesar would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph with his fiancee, Mary. This one little family seemingly swept up in the tide of earthly power gave birth to a son who would be Lord of all the earth. Now what God was doing through Caesar's decree of a census was he was providing to Jesus the credentials needed to demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah. The Old Testament said the Messiah had to be of the line and house of David, Second Samuel chapter 7. And then there's that prophecy 700 years earlier by Micah, Micah 5.2, which says that the the promised ruler will come in Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem. You who were least among the the clans of of Judah, from you will come the ruler who will rule for me. But here's the question, how are Joseph and Mary, this poor Betrothed couple who live 90 miles northwest up in Bethlehem, and they don't have cars, you know, there's no bus they can take. You don't really, when you're a peasant in Galilee, you live your whole life in Galilee, there's really no way, no incentive for you to go back to, down to some place like Bethlehem. And yet, for Jesus to have the proper credentials, their son must be born there. God's answer was a decree from Caesar Augustus requiring this to happen. And for this purpose, mighty Caesar was controlled by the unseen hand of the true sovereign, the sovereign God. David Gooding says this, For Augustus, the taking of censuses was one way he employed to get control over various parts of his empire, But And here's the irony of the thing, in the process, as he thought, of tightening his grip on his human empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and the world, was born in the city of David in accordance with prophesied scripture. God had credentialed his son. Now, as Christians, we should be encouraged by this display of God's sovereignty as he arranges the circumstances of Jesus' birth through Caesar's decree. Because the same sovereignty we see here on the grand scheme, do you realize it's also exercised in the small, even the minute affairs of our lives. Now we know that the Jews were not happy about this census. There were revolts. That's why Quirinius was sent over to do the census. There was a great, it was humiliating for them. And they were outraged that this census would be imposed upon them. And and you and I are outraged by things the earthly princes do. And it seems unjust, and it just seems like it's all going in a bad direction. Tell me if I'm the only one who feels that way from time to time these days. And we're reminded here that all things are in the hand of God. J.C. Ryle says, "'Let us ever rest our souls on the thought that God is ordering all things in heaven and on earth. He turns the hearts of kings whithersoever he will.'" And Jesus has promised, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the same sovereignty that orchestrated the events of Jesus' birth precisely in line with biblical prophecy, fulfilling the very word of God, that same sovereignty will in our time overrule the wills of kings and princes and governors and CEOs with the the ultimate aim, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And in due times, the heavens will open and the son of God will return and there will be the end of the age. God's sovereignty will make it sure. Now, Jesus' application is, therefore, don't be anxious. Don't be so anxious. Here's what he says. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? I I love that expression. Jesus is saying, give me the most insignificant thing you can think of. A couple of sparrows falling to the ground. You you, you can buy them for less than a penny. He says, even even that does not happen apart from the will of your heavenly Father. And every hair on your head is numbered. Therefore, he says, fear not. Therefore, fear not. Contrary to all appearances, Christians have nothing to fear from the the Caesars and powers of the world. Although unknown to them, they have everything to fear from the sovereign holiness of God. J.C. Ryle concludes that a Christian should regard every king and potentate of any kind as a creature who with all his or her power can do nothing but what God allows and nothing which is not carrying out God's gracious will. That's the first thing we learn is the sovereignty of God in the birth of Jesus. The second thing we learn, and here's the great emphasis, is the humanity of our Savior. That's the second emphasis in this passage, the humanity of Jesus Christ. What could be more human than the sight of Joseph and Mary trudging their way along the paths of Judea on a 90-mile trek from Bethlehem And we can see Joseph on foot leading a donkey on which Mary likely would have been riding as they made slow and painful progress. And they're fervent believers, and so we can be certain they would have stopped. They would have gotten together and prayed together and asked God to protect them and help them. Uh, they, they, They were Bible people. Is there any doubt that these descendants of the line of David would have known the Psalms and They would have encouraged each other, saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. As they went up the rough hills, they go upward into Judea. And the terrain gets more rugged, and Joseph would have turned to Mary and said, Don't forget the 121st Psalm. Lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, women who have born children will tremble at the harrowing nature of Mary's journey. She is very late in her pregnancy, and she's either walking or more likely riding a donkey along the rough paths of Judah. We can see her sharing her anxiety with Joseph. We can see his brow creasing as he seeks to comfort her. Now, Luke spares us the details, but he records simply the event. Verses 4 to 5 Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, it's uncertain if Mary went because she also had to register. We know of some censuses where the women had to register too, but not always. But to be sure, she would have wanted to be with him. They, they, they alone, with some exceptions, were aware of the extraordinary, the unique thing they were involved in. She was carrying in her virgin womb the, 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 a, 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 the, the child conceived by the Holy Spirit who was the Son of God. They wanted to be together for, for, for what they were doing. I have no doubt she didn't want to be left alone back in Nazareth to, to deal by herself with the scandal of, of an unwed pregnancy. And they would want to be together for the, the birth of the child. And so off they went. And finally they arrive. And here's what Luke tells us. Verse 7, when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 7. Now Luke emphasizes these, these scenes to highlight the humanity of the Lord Jesus. We, we, we tend to have these pristine notions of, oh, what the holy birth would have been like. And it would have been just smooth and, and happy and, you know, starlight is focused through prisms of clouds upon the holy scene. That is not the scene that Luke is giving us. Anybody who's been present at a childbirth does not need to imagine that Mary is crying and shouting in pain and fear the incarnation of Jesus required him to come into the world just like any other baby. In fact, shall we say, his childbirth was far earthier than most. He was not born in a hospital room, not even in a bed. He was born in a stable with no one to attend him but his father and the animals who were in that shelter. Kent Hughes is a little graphic, but I think he's accurate when he puts it this way. There was sweat and pain and blood as, and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth she lay on was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with a stench of manure and acrid straw to make a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hand, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his little face grimacing as he gasped in the cold air and his cry pierced the night. You see, the point is that Jesus was not merely born in the appearance of humanity, but he was born in true humanity. And this is what Paul meant in the passage I read earlier that he, he took up the form of true humanity. He took up a human nature and body, though he was in the form of God. Yet God's Son did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, 6-7. Here we have the eternal divine Son who dwelt with the Father before together they joined in the creation of the universe. And now he becomes creature. He takes on to his, his deity, the creaturely human nature. And, and it, he embraces this as the beginning of what theologians rightly call the humiliation of Christ, because this human creature is a creature that has fallen in sin. Jesus himself is sinless. That's partly what the virgin birth is about but he enters into a humanity where he experiences all of the circumstances of the cursedness of the fall of mankind. We look upon the account and we say, oh, how my life is affected, how how I have suffered because of the cursedness of of sin and the fall of mankind. Do not say that Jesus has no idea because he he experienced, in fact, even more of the suffering and the alienation and the rejection and the pain and the loneliness of a fallen human state. It began at the moment of his birth. God caused his son to be incarnate as true, though sinless man, because this was necessary for us to be saved. Listen to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews two fourteen to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And Jesus was made man in order to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It it cannot be emphasized enough that the reason that Jesus was born as man was so that he would be able to die for men. The meaning of Christmas is Good Friday. And the reason for that is that it was man who broke God's law through transgression. So if there's going to be a sacrifice for forgiveness, it must be made by man. But that man must be without sin, or else he would have to die for his own sin. So he must be sinless. And he must not only be man, he must be God, so that his one death could suffice for the forgiveness of all those who believed. And my friends, there is no one else, conceivably or actually in all of history, who could be that Savior than Jesus Christ, God's incarnate Son, who could meet that need. I love the words of. The medieval theologian Anselm, he said the life of this one man was so sublime, so precious that it alone could pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world, yea, even infinitely more. Philip Riken comments, salvation comes through faith in God incarnate, the son of God who lived, died, and lives again in true humanity. Well, Luke's account of Jesus' birth highlights the sovereignty of God and the humanity of our Savior, but additionally, the sinfulness of mankind. As Luke tells it, Mary gives birth to Jesus in a, in a stable. She lays him in a manger, an animal's food trough, not only because of his, it's true humanity, but also because of sin, because of man's sin. A Christian tradition, I think very plausibly, holds that the stable would have been a cave. Justin Martyr makes that comment in the second century. It makes sense. Judas, at uh, Bethlehem's in the hills. The stable would have been a, a cold uh, cave, small, cut out of a nearby hill. And, and there the holy family nestles in such poor and uncomfortable accommodations, Luke says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, when Luke mentions the inn, don't be thinking of some charming bed and breakfast on Meeting Street in Charleston. Uh, it, it would have been a, what's called a caravansary. Even Every little town had a, a crude hut so that when caravans were passing through, they could spend the night. When you and I spend a night in such a place, we call it camping. <laughs> what he calls an inn, we call camping. And, 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 it's, and it's full. There's no room for them there. Probably the most likely reason is that so many people are in Bethlehem because of the Roman census, and they had to come back to it. And yet at the same time, this reception of God's Son with such neglect is nothing less than scandalous. All of Israel should have been gathered in joyful faith as the prophecies of the, pro- of the Messiah came true. God had foretold that the Savior would be born in little town of Bethlehem, David's royal city, and they should have had a permanent watch there. There should have been a station waiting for him to come with heralds ready to spread the good news. The Messiah has come. Why didn't they do that? Because they stopped caring. They stopped caring. Now, there were some few faithful men and women. We think of Anna and Simeon who were waiting for the Messiah in the temple. They know he has to come there sometime. But They're the exception by far. But the great majority of people were simply too preoccupied with earthly affairs. And frankly, they were too unconcerned for the forgiveness of their sins to give any thought to the young couple from the royal line of David that straggled into town on that first Christmas Eve you asked, wasn't there at least some family that would take them in? Well, the answer apparently was no. There was no family willing to take them in. Families then are like families now. They're concerned about families and family members. and These weren't people they knew. Even a great descendant of David. They didn't know him. He wasn't from their school. He was shut out. Now, if they'd come in a carriage with horses and attendants and baggage with emblems of wealth and privilege, there'd be no number. <laughs> there would have been many houses eager to take them in, but they had no money. They had no, nothing outwardly impressive. They had no local contacts. And so Luke says, there was no place for them in any warm and welcome comfort. And so the Son of God was born in cold, cheerless poverty, a fitting symbol for the character of the world he came to save. Well, Jesus' cold shoulder in Bethlehem begins a lifelong experience and it prefigures especially during his ministry 30 years later of the way the people would treat him and reject him despite his many proofs, his goodness and his greatness. And John summarizes this in John 1, 10 to 11, that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, if we find ourselves being indignant for the lack of reception Joseph and Mary got in Bethlehem, it leads to the obvious questions what would we have done? Would we have done any better? The answer is probably no. Even more relevant, here's the real question Do we have room for Jesus now? And do we attend to his to the Bible's teaching about his deity and his incarnation? Do we read and sit at his feet? And are are we taught by his word and the Sermon on the Mount and many other wonderful places? Do we look in faith to his sin-atoning death, saying, your blood for my sins? Do we look with hope to his glorious resurrection, his ascension, his soon return from heaven? If we do not, the likely reason is exactly the same as the people of Bethlehem. They were preoccupied with other things, earthly things, ambitions, concerns, anxieties, resentment, self-absorption. Our hearts are filled with worldly things, and so no room is left for Jesus. And this has continued, not only during Jesus' life, this phenomenon has continued throughout history whenever the gospel is preached. The high and the mighty have no room for the Lord Jesus. I'm quite sure Caesar Augustus never learned about this birth, but if he had, he would have held it. He would have said, it's totally contemptuous, some poor Judean couple. What do I care about them and their religion?" The high and the mighty have no place for Jesus. The same is true for the scholars and philosophies. James Boyce says this If this family had been in Greece and had appeared in Athens at the Agora before the philosophers and made their need known, the philosophers and scholars would not have received them. What about the church? What about churches? So many churches today, even that have the Christian label, they have no room for the deity of Jesus. Virgin birth of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the atoning death of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, soon return of Jesus—they have no room for these things. That Jesus' main opponents would be religious leaders. It was by the chief priests that he was consigned to be put to death. But there is one kind of person who does leave room for Jesus, and dare I say, only one kind of person, and that is a sinner who's convicted of his or her guilt and who longs to be forgiven. And this is why later in Jesus' ministry, it's the tax collectors, it's the prostitutes, it's the outcasts, it's the the low of the society who flocked around him because they knew they were guilty and they longed for redemption through his Savior. Another way to put this is who will make room for Jesus? Only those in whose heart God's Spirit has done and is doing the work of regeneration, the first sign of which is conviction of sin and the need to be forgiven. Only they are willing to give Jesus a welcome. Are you such a person? When you think of all the things going on in your life, do you realize that the real and true need you have is to be forgiven of your sin? To be forgiven through Jesus and have nothing else is to have eternity. To have everything else and not to be forgiven is to have nothing. And we think of Paul in Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you say, no, that's me. What what matters is that I have sinned. I fall short of the glory of God. Well, then keep reading one verse because there's good news in Jesus Christ that sinners like you may be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith a propitiation is a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice if you sense that your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sins then God's word says make room for Jesus in your heart believe believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But maybe there's another question you have. Maybe it's the converse of this. Will Jesus have room for me if I ask him to be my savior? Well, God's word assures you that Jesus will make room for you. He will receive you. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out John six thirty seven. I mentioned earlier John's gospel's teaching that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But keep reading one verse forward. But who all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Make room for Jesus and you will be forgiven and he will receive you and give you salvation. Well, let me conclude with one final note which really becomes an application for us from the birth account. A, a greater marvel even than the rejection of Jesus by the people of Bethlehem is the wonder of the humility with which he comes, the humility of God's grace because of his love in order to save sinners. You know, we would expect the Son of God again to be born in, 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 a, in a palace, to be placed in a, in a fur, whatever is the fanciest fur. He'd be in a cradle with gold and the ermine or, or some other wonderful fur to make him comfortable. That's not what we find at all. He's not, We would think his mother would have the best doctors in a luxury medical suite. Oh, no. But God designed for the coming of his son to bear all the emblems of that humble spirit by which Jesus came from heaven to you in order that you would be saved. Such is God's grace for you and for sinners That when his son came to bear the curse of our sin, he stooped to embrace all the humility our redemption required, ultimately the humility of dying a cursed death on the cross. Kent Hughes writes, the son of God was born into the world not as a prince but as a pauper, We must never forget that this is where Christianity begins. This is where it always begins with a sense of need, with human insufficiency. And Christ sets the example by humbly going to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. And here's the application when we see the humility with which Jesus came to us, well, we will go to Him in the same humble spirit, and then we'll go to the world with Jesus' willingness to reach the poor and the needy, guilty sinners who desperately need to forgiven and, and probably don't even know it. And if that means that our agenda must be set aside, it's his humility that we embrace. If we do that, will we experience the scorn Jesus did? Yep. Will we be rejected and despised? We certainly will. But the humility with which Jesus came to us will be the watchword of our service to him. People say, you know, what gift can I give to Jesus at Christmas? If this is of any indication here, the greatest gift you can give to Jesus at Christmas is to humbly tell somebody else about him. That's why he came, so that sinners would be saved. Tell sinners. And that means we set aside concern for self, the demand that everything be our own way. And Paul gave us this conclusion... Speaking of Jesus' sublime humility, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others also. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your Son, and we thank you for Luke's record Thank you that he tells us about Caesar Augustus and how you're the real sovereign in this world, Lord, and you were orchestrating these great things so that your prophecies would be fulfilled and we would have a savior. Father, we thank you that your son became human and that meant degradation and suffering because you love us and this was the way of our salvation. And Father, we pray that we would open our doors to Jesus that you would move in our heart, that you'd give us the conviction of sin, which alone will make us say, Jesus, come to me. And we thank you that Jesus draws us to himself with grace. And then, Father, give us his humble zeal, that we would inconvenience ourselves. Oh, how your son inconvenienced himself from eternity. But he did it so that we would be saved. Would you make us your humble servants today? so that others will hear about Jesus through us. We pray in his name, amen.